0: Please be seated, everyone. And if you please uh, turn with me in the Scripture to Psalm 2. We're looking at Psalm 2 uh, together uh, tonight. Last week, we uh, last Lord's Day evening, uh, we looked at Psalm 1. And uh, this evening, we want to follow our study of Psalm 1, uh, coming to Psalm 2 here in the in the Psalter. And so, as we turn uh, to the Scripture. Uh, Let's give our attention then to the uh, inerrant and unfailing, infallible uh, word of the living God, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Dear Lord, we thank you again that we can turn to the uh, psalter uh, tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that your word is living uh, and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And so we pray, dear God, tonight that you indeed would speak uh, by your spirit uh, through your word that we again would, would hear uh, something of the Savior uh, even tonight. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, last Lord's Day, we looked at uh, the first psalm, and as we uh, just read the second psalm together, in many ways, the first uh, two psalms of the Psalter can be seen as uh, kind of two great pillars uh, through which uh, the rest of the Psalter is entered. They stand majestically uh, at the beginning of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1, you remember, is about, well, it's very personal. It's about the way of the righteous. Uh, and the way uh, of the, the wicked and that there's only two kinds of, of life. And at the end of that, hopefully we saw the point was that we need to know where we are planted. Uh, we need to know what kind of fruit we're bearing in our life and we need to know where we are going and we need to know uh, among which people uh, we, have, we have taken our stand and in which, which soil we're planted and uh, if we indeed have, have faith in the Lord Jesus, if we are part of His righteous ones, not because of who we, we are, Uh, but because He is the righteous one and we are united to Him by faith. And so the first psalm was all about uh, the fact that we need to be uh, planted in the good soil of the Word of God, bearing fruit uh, in His grace. Now, Psalm 2 turns really to, instead of uh, speaking to us about um, our own personal planting, whether in uh, the way of the righteous or the wicked, Psalm 2 is really a psalm that sets before us where all history... Uh, is going. This is a big psalm. Uh, This is uh, much bigger than uh, simply uh, our way of life. Uh, This is a psalm that talks about where all history is going. And it gives to us a picture uh, of the king uh, of the psalms. The king of the psalms to whom has been promised the submission we find in this psalm of all the nations. The king who uh, keeps appearing throughout the book of Psalms. If you know your Psalms, you read of the king again and again and again. You read of a king who's longed for. You read of a king who's glorious, a king who reigns in righteousness, a king who's to be worshipped. Psalm 95 puts it this way, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And so in the Psalms, we hear of my king. We hear of the king forever, the king of glory, the palace of the king. King over all the earth, the great king, our king, king from of old, the king in his might, a king who rejoices. And indeed, we hear about enemies of the king. And if the Psalms speak of a king, of course, you would expect they would also speak of a kingdom. And so they speak of an everlasting kingdom, the scepter of the kingdom, a kingdom ruling over all. It will speak of the glory of the kingdom and the splendor of the kingdom. And uh, so the first two Psalms serve really as these two great pillars that through which we enter the Psalter, one, but the way of the righteous and the wicked, the other, focuses on the king of the Psalms. Uh, and what must we know of the king of the Psalms? Well, there are several things from this psalm. First thing we need to know about the king of the Psalms is that he is a king uh, who is opposed. He is a king who is opposed. That is, his reign is contested. Not everyone submits to the king. In fact, this psalm tells us we need to be aware uh, that there is a premeditated, planned, plotted, rage-filled violence in the hearts of those who oppose him. And the psalm begins with this question. Why? Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And the psalm begins with this, this Why? As in, this doesn't make any sense. Why do they do this? Uh, Alec Motyer, an Old Testament student of the Bible, translates these opening verses this way. Why are the nations in turmoil and states keep pondering empty schemes? The kings of the earth take up their stations and the potentates sit in conclave against Yahweh and against his anointed one. Let us tear apart their restraints and throw off from us their bondage. Uh, It's a great great translation. So this is a picture in the opening of the psalm of a planned revolt and an attempt to overthrow the authority of the covenant God and His anointed chosen one. And the picture here is of nations, peoples, in an ongoing state of rage and turmoil, but they have a a fixed determination uh, to remain so. Now, rage here means to uh, noisily assemble. Why do the nations noisily assemble? The word for peoples in verse 1 is a word that uh, really means a people, who, a people that is a people brought together uh, for a common cause. You, you become a people because you've got this common cause together. And the rulers, they're the powerful ones. They're the weighty ones. That's what that means. And what are the rulers and peoples doing? What's the common cause that brings people together here in the psalm? Uh, well, we're told it's an act of it's an act of destruction. It's an act of destruction. Uh, they, want to, uh, they want to burst apart, uh, cast away, tear apart, throw away what? The Bible says the, the bonds uh, and the cords of the Lord. That is, uh, they want to tear apart what is binding them to the overruling. Uh, authority of the Lord. And They want to tear those apart. There's opposition to the king. There's opposition to the king, to the anointed one. Opposition to his authority. It should remind us of the parable Jesus told in Luke 19. You remember this parable of the nobleman who went away to a far country to receive a kingdom, but then the citizens at home sent a message saying, Uh, We don't want this man to reign over us. Don't bother coming back. We don't want you to reign over us. Just want to tear asunder the authority under which they are. After Peter and John are brought before the council in Acts chapter 4, remember they were teaching in the name of Jesus and they're released. Uh, The early church had prayed for them. Uh, and uh, Acts 4 recounts the, the, the prayer of the early church. It's really an amazing prayer in Acts chapter 4. you've got your Bible open, you turn over to Acts chapter 4 and find out, well, what were the, uh, what were the early believers praying uh, after, uh, after these uh, apostles are released? Well, this is what we read was, was in their prayer of the early church, verse 27 of Acts 4. For truly, remember, they're praying to the Lord now, for truly in this city, they pray to God, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. He's the anointed one. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the early church knew that this opposition to Jesus, uh, this was this was part of. Part of God's plan that there'd be a pilot and there'd be a Herod. And uh, they knew there'd be opposition to the king and to the people of the king. And that's why Peter and John were in prison. Uh, but now they've been released. And for the early Church the Lord, we knew this was going to happen. There's going to be opposition to the king and his uh, and his people. We live in a, in a land, of course, today, where authority in many ways is despised, whether it's the authority of the government or the church or the family. And that's the thing. Any sense of restraint... Uh, is seen as oppressive. And especially any sense of a restraint placed upon us by God is rejected. That's what Psalm 1 Psalm 2 is talking about here, this idea. just We cannot stand this authority over us. We need to tear apart uh, this bond. Does that happen today? Well, yes, it does. I remember in the 80s, uh, listening to a... Uh, a fellow who had a great name, uh, John Cougar Mellencamp. Ever heard John Cougar Mellencamp? I just loved his name. But he, had a, uh, he came out with a song in uh, 1983, I think it was. It was called The Authority Song. And I'm not going to sing it. Don't be fearful. <laughs> but it's very helpful. Uh, it kind of captures the 80s in many ways and authority. Uh, his first verse, he's speaking about those in authority. So He says this, They like to get you in a compromising position. They like to get you there and smile in your face. They think they're so cute when they got you in that condition. Well, I think it's a total disgrace. So he's talking about the authority. And then the chorus goes, I fight authority. Authority always wins. I fight authority. Authority always wins. I've been doing it since I was a young kid. I come out grinning, he says. I fight authority. Authority always wins. You've got to hear verse 2. So I call up my preacher. I say, give me strength for round 5 because he wants to keep fighting authority. He said, that's the preacher said, you don't need no strength. You need to grow up, son. I said, growing up leads to growing old, then to dying and dying to me don't sound like all that much fun. I fight authority. And authority always wins. So there's kind of this, you know, this kind of uh, futileness to his fight uh, for authority. Uh, but it's uh, it's a wonderful song that captures a lot of what was going on in the 80s and 70s and 60s and, well, 90s actually and 2000s and 2010 and on it goes. But, um, but here the Bible says this is, this is what characterizes those who are raging against the authority of God. We can't stand it. But friends, we must not seek to overthrow the good and gracious restraints and uh, uh, creational ordinances of God. What God has Uh, Placed in in this world for our good and for our blessing by His authority. But this is what the powerful, Psalm 2 says, this is what the powerful and mighty and gathered peoples in Psalm 2 and many today are seeking to do. In the 70s and 80s, uh, it was the battle uh, for the Bible. But now, now it seems to be the battle for God's fundamental design uh, for all the created order. People aren't just rebelling against the Bible; uh, they're rebelling against what God has put into the creation, you know, like marriage and uh, and the Sabbath uh, and uh, made in the image of God, male and female. You see that it's not the battle of the Bible; it's the battle for the very authority of God in all of creation, and uh, people are trying to tear it apart and cast it. Away. All sin, friends, has this same characteristic, though, at heart. To push off the restraints of God. It's rebellion here in Psalm 2 against the king. Rebellion against authority. It's saying to God, I will not have you restrain me. I will live according to my own law. I will do what I want, when I want, where I want, how I want, with who I want. And ain't nobody uh, going to stop me. Writes one commentator, the nations appear as opponents. The guise they frequently wear in the Psalms, the rebellion against the Lord and His anointed transcends some cultic or historical occasions, not just about what happened way back in Psalm two, and becomes an interpretation of all history, short of the coming of the reign of God in the world. Every nation, people, group, and organization that possesses and uses power autonomously, independent of the rule of the Lord, is theologically in rebellion. They're under the wrath of God. The divine zeal for his own rule. This is what's going on. Toss off all restraint. I want to be, that's all that commentator saying, we want to be a law unto ourself. That's called autonomy. Law to myself. Self-law. Rather than theonomy. God's law. Not the historical theological movement named theonomy, but simply these are the two options. Either I will live according to my own law, or I will submit myself to the king. So there's opposition to the king. But we also read here about the installation of the king. Uh, verses 4-6. to six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy Hill. So the Lord. So here's what going on. There's opposition. How does the Lord respond here in this song? Well, the Lord has a word for the peoples, kings and rulers of the earth. But before the Lord speaks, we see uh, that at the very time that there's rage and turmoil and plotting and counseling against the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord is pictured. Did you catch this? The Lord is pictured uh, seated in the heavens. He who sits in the heavens, uh, he's seated uh, as a ruler is upon a throne Psalm 123 1 speaks similarly. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens, sitting in the throne. And the truth of the matter here is that despite the ugliness of what Psalm 2 portrays, of what's going on below, despite the plans and the plots and the rage and the anger and the violence and the desire to destroy and cast away, tear apart all signs of any kind of authority from heaven, the one who sits in heaven, the Bible describes, he's not worried. He's not fearful. God is not wringing his hands, wondering how this will all turn out. He's also not planning to abdicate the throne. He's not planning to vacate the palace. And he's not about to give up all his claims and authority and rule and hand it over to the raging mob. All is turmoil below. Here's the thing. All is turmoil below. Uh, But all is calm above. Friends, we may find ourselves greatly disturbed by the raging of those in rebellion uh, against God, His authority, His rule, His creation, His standards. Oh, but don't ever forget, all is calm in heaven above. All is calm in heaven above. We have a picture in our living room uh, at home there in Mullica Hill. I've seen it in another family's uh, room uh, in their home as well. It's a picture of a lighthouse uh, on a rock. And there's a lone figure standing in the doorway of the lighthouse. And, uh, and uh, 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 there's this great ocean of waves and billows uh, all around encircling the lighthouse. As that one itty-bitty fellow stands in the doorway on the rock. Uh, you can look at the waves in that picture. And you can be overwhelmed. Or you can look at the lighthouse and be at peace. There's no panic in heaven. Instead, the Bible says, he who sits enthroned in heaven laughs, he smiles. The Lord, that is Adonai, the Sovereign One, the Bible says, holds them in derision, which could be translated as mocks them. Now, that's not a malicious, sinful taunting. When we think of mocking, that's that's what it is. It's our sinful nature usually. But here it means it does not take them seriously. It is not a real threat. That is, all the angry politicians and military power and violent threats and pride of the nations do not impress God. No. The thought that His authority is in fact in jeopardy or about to be overthrown is pictured here as comical. The Lord sees the ridiculousness of it, all this raging against His authority. The Lord describes the folly of idolatry elsewhere in the Scripture. Again, if you have your Bible open, turn with me to Isaiah 44. I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read a couple of verses there, and I'm going to challenge you to, to uh, see if you don't smile when I read these verses. Okay, this is a challenge to you. If you can hear these verses and not smile or laugh inwardly as the Lord describes idolatry and just how foolish it is through his prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 44:14. Speaking of the idolater, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourish it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. Takes a part of it, warms himself, kindles a fire, bakes bread. Also, uh, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god. His idol. And falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me. For you are my God. That is that is foolishness. We're meant to laugh. And the Bible says, So does God. That is, he laughs at the foolish pretensions and plots and plans for his overthrow. But his laughter leads to a word from heaven. And, uh, and it's a strong word. The laughter ends, runs its course, and then he speaks. And the Bible says, um, then he will speak to them in his wrath. It's a word that means anger. Uh, can also mean, uh, metaphorically, the nose. That is, he speaks Out of his nose, the idea being with a snort of anger, that is righteous anger, righteous wrath, the anger of a sovereign, the righteous anger of the creator, the potter who has clay pots, clay pots, planning a rebellion to take over the wheel and the kiln. And what's the word? Verse six, he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. That is, I have installed my king. I have already uh, appointed my king. Now, notice the contrast here between the let us of verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart, and the verse 6, as for me. That is in contra- contradiction to what the folks are doing below. So while the rulers and people are in turmoil, rage below, the Lord proclaims that His king has already been installed and He's taken His place on Mount Zion, my holy hill. That is the hill of holiness, as opposed to the sin and rebellion taking place all around. Now to be sure, Mount Zion geographically was not a big deal. Maybe about 11 acres of land David took from the Jebusites on the southeastern ridge of Jerusalem. In Daniel's vision... Daniel 2, God's kingdom begins as a rock uh, cut out from the, the mountain. Begins as a rock, but fills the whole earth. Twelve apostles seem a small start, but the church grows and spreads throughout the, world, throughout the earth. As a mustard seed grows to a large plant, God's kingdom grows. Or yeast permeates the whole batch of dough, the kingdom spreads. The Lord's already installed his king. In other words, while rebellion is happening, uh, schemes are being hatched, the true and rightful king is already in place. While some are setting themselves against the Lord and his anointed, the anointed king has already been given his appointment. Think about it this way. Imagine a factory where um, the workers get it in mind to take over the business. There's going to be a coup in the factory. Uh, they work during the day, but secretly at night, they're holding special meetings, trying to decide how and when they're going to break into the owner's office and demand that he hand over the keys so that they can appoint someone else as manager of the factory. The next morning, uh, the factory newsletter is published with the headline, Owner has installed new manager. Already moved into corner office. The king has been installed already. The Lord has appointed and installed his king. In other words, for the, here's the thing. For the Lord's part, there is no question of, of, who, of who reigns. There's no doubt uh, here about the outcome. It says one, the divine decree offers the king the grant of universal dominion. Obviously, the divine grant, says one, of worldwide rule to the kings of Judah stands in great contrast to historical reality. The Davidic empire at its height might have been thought to be an initial realization of the grant, but it was hardly the equal of other empires at its time. The logic of the psalm is not historical but theological. The issue that informs the psalm is the question of the ultimate power in the universe, and the psalm is based on the faith that the Lord throned in heaven is the ultimate power, and the dominion of the sun must correspond to the sovereignty of the Father. I have set my king. Now, we need to keep our eyes on the throne. This is a reality check for the people of God. Remember, there is a king on the throne. So there's opposition to the king, installation of the king. And, of course, the identity of the king. Who is he? Well, it seems as if the, the, the king speaks in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now here's the king speaks. This is the king of the Psalms and he has something to tell. Uh, the word decree here is the word statute and uh, comes from uh, comes from a verb which means to engrave as in as in something carved in a rock and meant to last forever. A permanent uh, decree. When something is permanent, it means it's lasting, intended to last, unchanged, indefinitely. That's this decree. You uh, are my son. Today I have begotten you. Which makes you wonder, incidentally, uh, when someone gets a perm, like maybe someone did for Easter, um... It is, well, that's not really a permanent, is it? It only lasts. What does it last? For like weeks, or a couple of months, or something like that. It's not a permanent. It's a temporary, right? The decree is permanent. It lasts. Uh, it lasts uh, forever. Uh, it's carved in rock forever. Now, what is it? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is similar to verse six. I have set my king. When the Lord establishes covenant with David in Psalm or Second Samuel seven fourteen. He spoke of David's son Solomon building a house for God's name. And the Lord said to David back there in 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So in Israel, among God's people, the idea was this, that the king of God's people was, as it were, uh, to the Lord, a representative of the Lord and really an adopted son. He was to rule uh, as God's son, his adopted son. But of course, this is a, a verse that uh, is quoted in the New Testament often uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, for instance, over in Acts 13, this is what we read in Acts 13, uh, 32. And we bring you the good news, said Paul, that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it's written in the second psalm, you are My Son. Uh, today I have begotten You. This is of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, uh, in that wonderful opening chapter to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3 says, He is Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on High, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. And So this psalm, this one who is speaking in the New Testament, clearly is referred to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this psalm, well, it talks about that king then in verse 7. Uh, in verse eight, it talks about the extent uh, of his kingdom. That is, the nations will be his heritage, the ends of earth, ends of the earth, his possession. Uh, and verse nine speaks about his victory. His victory over uh, over all opposition. All opposition will be conquered. Verse nine and destroyed. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces, like a potter's uh, vessel. This is what will happen to all opposition. Uh, to the king who has been installed uh, by God himself. We read of this also in the New Testament, First Corinthians 15. Part of it was read for us this morning, of course, of the resurrection. Later on in First Corinthians 15, uh, we read these words. Then comes the end when he, that's Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under under his feet. So this is the identity of the king. And he's telling the decree. This is is engraved in stone. Well, what's engraved in stone? Uh, Well, uh, that uh, the nations are his heritage, the ends of the earth his possession, and all opposition will be... Destroy. Now that's the decree, uh, which means, of course, that this is where all of history is going. Yes, there's opposition to the king, uh, but the Lord has already acted to to install his king, the rightful king, and that king is going to reign over all. That's where history is going. It doesn't end in a big mess, it doesn't end with the church destroyed. So that means we need to know the identity of the king, the extent of his kingdom, and that no opposition will remain. And that either men will be converted to Christ in faith, or they will be compelled to bow before him when he returns in judgment. Now, sometimes in political discussion, uh, you hear folks talking about being, uh, especially in our day, about being on the wrong side uh, of history. Well, if you don't, the Bible says, if Psalm 2, Psalm two says, if you don't recognize that Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate as risen today, that Jesus Christ will rule all the nations, and that the Father has promised the world to His Son, and that His Word will reign, and every knee will bow to Him, well, then, then you're on the wrong side of history. Writes one in this psalm, Yahweh's decree controls history. The will of God for Jesus' life is in these verses, 7 to 9. This is the word that determines what will take place and prevail in the history of this world. And the certainty of this decree needs to infect, says this writer, needs to infect your world and life view. It should color the way you look at politics and world conditions. You may not know what to make of them always. There's lots of raging and turmoil. But you know, as a Christian, where history is headed. And you know what the decree is and how it will control and shape everything. It's what keeps God's people glued together during the present age, you see. We know where history is. Is going well. The wonderful thing, of course, about this psalm and where it ends, of course, is not only do we have the opposition, the installation of the king, the identity of the king, there's also a call for submission to the king. Last verse is 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. These are the same ones who are plotting and raging at the beginning of the psalm. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, the same ones. Serve the Lord, verse 11, with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now, this is wonderful. Notice who this call is for. The same ones who originally set themselves against the King. Kings of the earth, rulers taking counsel against Him. They're the ones to whom this, this call goes out. Here's a, here's a word of mercy. There's an opportunity here to turn. In judgment, God remembers mercy. There's all this raging. There's all this wanting to tear off the authority of God and break all the bonds of the God who's given us life. But here's an opportunity of mercy. Turn, the Lord says, from these ways. Rebels are called back. Turn from your rebellion. What are they called to do? Like all to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with 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 trembling. But friends, according to the Lord, service and fear—that is awe and rejoicing and trembling. They're all fitting. Oh, that's all fitting before the King of Kings. That's because this is the fear of reverence and awe, and friends, this is the trembling you get when you're in the presence of royalty and majesty and power. It's why if you and I ever had opportunity to uh, meet the uh, the new king of Britain as he comes over here, maybe he comes to South Jersey or something like that, and he comes through town and, and we're all lined up and we're all sweaty and oh what, how are we you know he's going to shake the hands of people in Pull Tavern and we line up outside and he's coming close and. Uh, we tremble before a king or queen it's of course why you wear your best to meet with the king or meet with the queen wasn't it great this morning? Uh, Easter morning people are they have, they have new dresses and suits come out that you've never seen before And people, and we're asked why? Why do we do that? Well, it's spring, new life. It's Easter, after all. We are celebrating the resurrection and new life. And so we're coming before the King, which we do every Lord's Day, celebrating the resurrection, celebrating the King, bowing to Him. In His presence. The majesty and the glory. That's not only for Easter Sunday morning. He's still glorious tonight, isn't He? Isn't He still worthy tonight? And isn't He still worthy every day, and especially every time we come, to sing His praises. But see the, see the mercy of the Lord here. Turn. Don't plot and rage against me. Serve the Lord, bow in submission to me, rejoice with uh, trembling, he's holy, this king, he's good, I'm sinful, I'm needy, I'm his servant dependent on grace. But you see, friends, this rejoicing with trembling, that's the proper response to the king. We are meant uh, to tremble before him and we're meant to tremble, uh, incidentally, before his word. Isaiah 66 says this, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What's the house that you would build for me? What's the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Listen to what the Bible says. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and then the Bible says, and trembles at my word. Hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble at His word. The proud and arrogant in the Bible disregard God's Word. They plot to remove themselves from its authority. But on the contrary, the Bible says, the humble and contrite of heart, the humble and repentant, on the other hand, tremble at His Word, are moved by His Word, not the words of men, but the Word of God, because it is the voice of their King and the voice of their Shepherd, the voice of the Son, the voice of their Lord and Savior, this is why we want to hear sermons. This is why we want to get our children to worship. This is why we want to come and to, to, to hear the Word of God proclaimed. Because the Bible says it's those who tremble at the Word of God to whom He looks, you see. Knowing that, that we are the ones who humbly put ourselves before Him. And friends, the wonderful thing about the end of this psalm is simply this. Yes, there's a warning. Avoid destruction and judgment. But there's also this wonderful invitation to blessing. And did you notice that just as Psalm 1 began, uh, so Psalm 2 ends. uh, It ends with a word of blessing. Psalm 1 began, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. You want to know what the counsel of the wicked is? It's in Psalm 2. To, the wicked is to, 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 to burst aside any restraint of God upon my life. I don't want to hear the Word. I don't want to hear about Jesus as Lord. I, 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 just, I want to live for myself. I'll make my own decisions. Thank you very much. Leave me to myself. But the end of Psalm 2 says, Turn and blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Instead, find refuge. That means find a safe, protected place with this installed majestic ruling king it is the only safe place to be there is a word of mercy even as the nations rage come and find refuge the Lord says in me Uh, I remember a story a couple years ago uh, I was watching the news. Maybe you watched it too a couple of years ago. A woman was being charged with, uh, with murder. And, uh, and so she's down, down there. The judge is up here. And, uh, and the wit- a witness was on the stand. It was a family member uh, of, the, uh, of the person who had been killed uh, by this woman who's on trial for murder. And there's a video of this. And, uh, and so this, uh, this family member is describing what happened. And, and then this, uh, this person on the stand is a Christian. And uh begins to, even as they're testifying about what happened, begins to talk about how this woman who's just murdered one of their family members really needs the gospel and really needs Jesus. So they've been raging against their family, killed their family members, and yet this, this person says, well they, well, they really need to hear of Jesus. And I know there's, there's peace and forgiveness in Jesus. And then the, uh, the person who is on trial is clearly, uh, is clearly shaken by what this person's saying. And, uh, and the person on, on, the, on the witness stand asks the judge, judge, can I go down and, and give uh, this woman a hug? And the judge says yes. And this person who's just had their family member murdered by this woman, but who's obviously shaken, went to hear his words of, of mercy in the gospel. And this person goes down and gives this person, and, and the judge later gives this person a hug as well. Trembling at the... At the thought of mercy. At uh, one who just killed one of their family uh, members. Oh, there's great raging against the authority of God. And don't think that this is just out there. You see, friends, that's, that's your own heart. That's my heart. In my sinful nature. I want to cast off all the bonds of the authority of God. And it's only by His grace that... That he, he draws us back to Him and says, No, serve me with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Come and bow before the one true King and find refuge for your soul. In wrath, God remembers mercy because He has, his friends, installed His King and make no doubt that there is no panic in heaven uh, no matter what the nations may do down here below. For Christ the King uh, is on the throne may that encourage you in this week to come. He is, after all, the one who died, who is risen, uh, who ascended, and is now proclaimed Lord and King over all. So let's trust in him, serve him, rejoice before him, uh, even in this week. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, psalm. We thank you, Lord, for the beautiful picture of the king of the psalms that's uh, portrayed for us here, Lord, and Lord, we know there's so much more for us to think about and to pray about and to consider together. But Lord, we just pray that You would take these words tonight. Uh, Help us, Lord, to be encouraged tonight. Lord, there's so much around us that would discourage us and make us despair. There's so much sin in our own heart, in our own rebellion against You and against Your Word and against uh, Your rule in our life. And Lord, then in our nation and the culture around us, oh Lord, there's so much tearing apart uh, at the, the good things that You have given for us. But help us, Lord, tonight to know that You have set Your King upon Mount Zion and He is reigning and He is ruling. And His, uh, his plan uh, for history, Lord, we know includes the putting of all His enemies under His feet. And they will either be converted to faith in Christ or one day they will bow the knee as He returns in judgment. And so, Lord, we pray that many today Instead of waiting for that day of judgment to bow bow before Him, they would bow today. They would recognize in Jesus, the, the crucified and risen One, recognizing Him, their King, their Lord, their Savior. Mercy for them and mercy we know also for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.